Well, thank you, Mark and Caleb, for uplifting my own heart personally in the way that you have served us today. I trust that you can say the same from wherever you may be as you uh, track with us this morning in this unusual and uh, temporary, we pray and hope and trust, um, way. By way of introduction in this portion of our worship service this morning, I need to borrow a phrase and explain a phrase from the Apostle Paul. It's one he uses on two occasions, once at the beginning of his letter to the church in Rome and once at the end of his letter to the church in Rome. So chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 16, verse 26, identical phrases found at the beginning and the end. The phrase is one I couldn't get off my mind this week as I was working through the sermon text for this morning, and the reason for that is because it's going to be a key phrase to help us understand the heart of the passage that is before us. The phrase that I am referring to is the obedience of faith, the obedience of faith, which is a very curious phrase that Paul uses in the context of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the magnum opus of the letter to the church at Rome, which expounds the gospel. And so from the beginning of Romans all the way to the end, we have this beautiful uh, unfolding of what God has done for us in Christ and then what we should do as, as a response. And it's sandwiched between both uses of this phrase, the obedience of faith. But what does that mean? And how is it not contradictory? Well, brother, we have come to know and who has ministered among us, Stephen Ewell writes as follows on this phrase. Faith is the means by which we receive God's gift of salvation. We don't contribute anything, nor do we make a deal with God. We don't give Him faith and obedience, he writes, so that He will give us salvation and happiness. There's no deal. Even our faith is God's gift to us. The obedience of faith, which the gospel brings about, he says, isn't about what we can or can't do, but what God has done in Christ. We strive to obey because we rest in Christ. Another way to put that is to say that faith is the root of our salvation and works are the fruit of our salvation, but both of those go hand in hand. We are not saved by works, But we are not saved without works either. We are saved by faith alone, yet saving faith is never alone. That is what the obedience of faith produces. Now, the reason for bringing this up isn't uh, at the beginning of another sermon on Genesis. No, we didn't fall asleep for a year and wake up in a a series in Romans. The reason I'm bringing this up is because we are about to encounter, all the way back in Genesis 6, a demonstration of the obedience of faith. Noah, as we heard already from Hebrews 11, was a man who, by faith, walked with God, who, by faith, obeyed God. In his generation and in his actions leading up to the flood, we observe a man who walked in the obedience of faith, and from this we learn a key and crucial lesson. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God. There is no rescue from what sin deserves except to trust in God's saving deliverance, 
And if there is no obedience to God's commands, there's no evidence that we have believed God in the first place. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God. And as we look to Genesis 6 this morning, please turn there, we will see five encouragements, five compelling reasons to walk in the obedience of faith. So turn to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, if you're not already there. And we will read all the way down to the end of 6 and all the way down to the end of chapter 7. And that's what we will cover this morning. So Genesis 6, verse 9. But first, before we read, let's pray. Would you do that with me as we ask for God's help? Lord, we've already been reminded from Psalm 119 this morning, and my eyes are drawn uh, for that reason to also Psalm chapter 1. And I pray that because of what we hear this morning, that we would be numbered among those who are blessed because we do not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat, the way of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers. But I pray, Lord, our delight would be on your instruction, your teaching, your law, and we would meditate on it day and night. So make us, we pray, to be like trees planted by streams of water that yield fruit in season so that our leaves do not wither and so that in all that we do, we would prosper. For we know, Lord, that it's not to be said of the wicked, for they are like chaff that the wind drives away and they will not stand in the judgment, or, nor sinners will in the congregation of the righteous. For you know the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, Lord, if we are listening to this and we are Christians, I pray that this would only be wind in our sails this morning to continue walking in the obedience of faith. And I pray, Lord, for anyone who is not a Christian, that they would listen very carefully and that they would be compelled to turn from themselves and from sin to you by trusting in Christ so that they would begin to walk in the obedience of faith. There are so many poles around us to do the exact opposite, so many temptations within and without. And so, Lord, would you, with the help of your Spirit, uh, increase the, uh, your word and Bless its preaching and its hearing so that indeed we would be those who would continue to walk in the obedience of faith. So bless our time in your word, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, all the way down to the end of chapter 7. This is what the word of God says. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, 
I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. And seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. And the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One interesting dynamic of preaching through Genesis so far have been the number of people who have expressed their surprise and, and grateful appreciation that this has not been the sermon series they were expecting. 
In the opening chapters dealing with creation, some were braced for significant attention given to the creation-evolution debate. Some may have been expecting lots of information about dinosaurs or the age of the earth or the relationship between scientific observation of general revelation, which is creation, and interpretation of special revelation, that is, the Bible. Yet as many capable men and women demonstrate, science and faith are not enemies. But I'm not a scientist, although I'm certainly interested in the field, nor am I a philosopher, although I love that realm of study. My aim is to be a pastor-theologian, one of the public theologians for our congregation, and so in Genesis, that's where my emphasis has been. My intent thus far has been to understand as best as I can the original meaning and intention of the author of Genesis, to just expose this, explain this, and then apply this to our lives in the 21st century. And as we come to the passages dealing with the flood, that aim will remain, even though lots of questions arise from these chapters. Was the flood local or was it global? Were dinosaurs on the ark? Where did all the water come from? Where did it all go? How did animals from the ark populate and spread to the rest of the world? These are the types of questions that many good inquiring minds ask, and many more of them abound, and they are good questions which many have sought the answers to. But while those questions might be our primary interest, they are not the primary interest of the biblical author. And so with the exception of a brief comment here and there, I won't be spending time trying to answer flood-related queries. Look at the Institution for Creation Research or Creation Ministries International, Answers in Genesis. There's lots of resources out there that I would love to point you to as you seek answers to those questions. But in preaching, God's Word sets the agenda. And I have the privilege of being nothing more than a table waiter, serving a meal to God's people the way that it was put on the plate. And so let's take up Genesis 6, 9 to 7, 24 with those thoughts in mind. You'll notice from verse 9 of chapter 6 that we encounter yet another, these are the generations in the book of Genesis. The first one is in chapter 2, verse 4. The second one was in chapter 5, verse 1. And the third is here in chapter 6, verse 9. And each time we encounter this wording, the plot of God's covenant dealings with the seed of the woman progresses a little bit farther down the road. This chapter of Genesis, uh, these are the generations, think of it as a chapter title. That chapter in Genesis 6, 9 runs all the way down to the end of chapter 9, where Noah's life is concluded in the same way as those of the genealogy of Genesis 5. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. So this all fits together as one unit. And as a unit, it is a literary masterpiece. As we're mostly used to telling this story to children and hearing this story as children, perhaps we've not been told of the genius of this account. And what I want to do is just uh, show that... Very briefly, it's a lot of information here, but what I want to do is just, this is a, a big picture look at Genesis. And I have Genesis 6, 9 to the end of chapter 9. Look at the top and the bottom. Find the two A's. There's an introduction and there's a conclusion. Then move in and you'll find the two B's. There's the corruption of all flesh and then the covenant with all flesh. Move in towards the middle, find the two C's. There's God's resolution to destroy the earth by a flood and then there's God's resolution never again to destroy the earth by a flood. Find the two Ds, God's command and Noah's response. They go into the ark. 
God's command and Noah's response, they go out of the ark. You've got the two E's, beginning of the flood, where the earth is inundated, and then you've got the end of the flood, where the earth dries up. And then you've got the two F's, the rising of the waters, and then you have the recession of the waters. And all of this is to show what the main emphasis, the main focus of this entire account is God's remembrance of Noah. That's what all of this is about. And so we will work all the way up to chapter 8, verse 1 this morning and uh, this uh, portion of Genesis. And as we look and see that the heart of God's account is God's gracious, the heart of this account is God's gracious remembering of Noah, this brings us to the first encouragement to walk in the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God because. The obedience of faith is how God distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. The particular mark of those who trust and obey is godly living, even though surrounded by an extremely ungodly culture. The obedience of faith is how God distinguishes between the righteous and the unrighteous. The passing comment from last week in chapter 6, verse 8 of Noah finding favor in the eyes of the Lord is now given explanation in verses 9 to 12. Noah was a righteous man, which combines both piety, that's a relationship to God, and ethics, which is a relationship to others in God's world. Those who are righteous, I quote, are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage others. This is a direct contrast to the corrupt and violent people who inundated the earth in those days. They didn't care about God's standard, and they had no hesitancy to disadvantage others to advantage themselves. That's what lovers of self rather than lovers of God do. Yet Noah was blameless in his generation, a word which literally means whole, complete, signifying wholehearted commitment and wholeness of relationship, as Bruce Waltke puts it. When it came to righteousness, Uh, When it came to righteous conduct before God and with others, Noah was all in. He was sold out to living in this way. This doesn't mean that he was without sin entirely. We'll soon learn that truth about Noah. But in this, uh, his main priority in life was a commitment to abstain from sin. One way to summarize Noah's obedience of faith is that Noah walked with God, as Enoch did back in Genesis chapter 5. Enoch and Noah both lived in close relationship with God, and when everyone else was blazing their own trail or discovering their own will to power, as Nietzsche put it, they were going in God's direction. Enoch was taken to be with God. Noah was delivered by God. And Noah here is also introduced to us as the new Adam with his three sons, as Adam had, and he walked with God as Adam did in the garden. This was the distinguishing feature of Noah in a corrupt world which had been grotesquely disfigured by greed and hatred expressed in personal and physical harm. Now, lest we think that Noah was being rewarded for his righteous and blameless behavior in a way that means salvation is acquired by works, let me go back to that verse we heard already in the book of Hebrews describing Noah's life. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, and reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By 
This, by faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah was a man who walked in the obedience of faith, and as he expressed the obedience of faith in the building of the ark, that was a continuation of the obedience of faith that resulted in his righteous, blameless conduct and his close relationship with God. And we have to ask ourselves, are these same markers of the obedience of faith distinguishing features of our lives? It's not just talk. It's also action. And knowing that this is how the Lord God evaluates those who will be saved and judged should certainly motivate us to evaluate whether or not we are indeed walking in the obedience of faith ourselves. There's a second encouragement to do so. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience salvation from God's judgment because God covenants with those who walk in the obedience of faith. There is a unique relationship that God establishes with those who by faith draw near to Him, a relationship He establishes with those who belong to Him. The obedience of faith is the only way that we will experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God because God covenants with those who walk in the obedience of faith. We see this in the section from verses 13 to 22 of chapter 6. God begins to reveal to Noah what is going to happen as a result of the violence and corruption that has filled the earth. He's determined to make an end of all flesh. He will destroy them with all the earth, those who have spread this corruption and violence throughout the entire creation that God has made. But that is not to be Noah's fate because the Lord informs Noah about what will happen and also how Noah might be saved. Make for yourself an ark of gopher or cypress wood in some translations. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch to make it waterproof. And the word for room here is literally nest. And the suggestion has been made that the animals aboard the ark may have entered into a state of hibernation during the cataclysm, which animals do, and uh, that perhaps eased the, eased the burden of care during the lengthy voyage. The undertaking that God gives here to Noah is incredible. The ark was to be, the measurement there in the ESV is cubits, 350 by 30. Now, a cubit is somewhere roughly between the measurement of your elbow to the end of your fingertip, and uh, there's a little bit of a variation in the, the, the measurement because, you know, people have different arm lengths, but a cubit is roughly about uh, 18 inches, and so the ark would have been 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. The length of that is one and a half football fields long. The ark was a beast. And it needed to be as this multi-level vessel would house the humans and animals to repopulate the earth. The promise of the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent depended upon the ark's successful voyage throughout the flood. As the Lord tells Noah in verse 17, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh. Everything that is on the earth shall die. 
But the continuation of the seed of the woman was never truly in jeopardy because of what we read in verse 18. But there's some tension here. Will Noah do what God has commanded? Will God keep his end of the bargain and spare them through the flood? What will happen here? Well, there's never any doubt because in verse 18 we read God saying to Noah, but I will establish my covenant with you. And following this are the instructions given regarding the animals and the supplies. But what we should zero in on here is the word covenant, which is an immensely significant one in the Bible. Mark it well if you've got your, your journals open in front of you, for it is not the only, it's not the only time it appears in Scripture, but this is the first time that it appears. And it will come again in the flood account and many times afterwards in Genesis and beyond. In short, a covenant, if you're looking for a definition, this is from Gentry and Wellam, a covenant is a relationship between two parties involving permanent and serious commitments of faithful, loyal love, obedience, and trust. In the Bible, there are various covenants between people, but the major covenants are God's covenants with creation, His covenant with Noah, his covenant with Abraham, his covenant at the Mount Sinai, his covenant with David, and the new covenant which we first read about in the Old Testament. These, I quote, these covenants constitute the framework of the larger story. They are the backbone of the biblical narrative, for through covenant, God establishes his kingdom. So to encounter the first use of covenant in God's relationship with Noah is a massive deal especially because it seems to encompass both the covenant with Noah as well as the covenant of creation. Just digging a little bit underneath the language here, it's very interesting that when God speaks about making a covenant with Noah, it's not the typical language of initiating a covenant, of starting something new. Instead, God speaks to Noah in this covenantal language and he says to him that he will affirm with Noah a covenant that already exists. But if this is the first place in the Bible we read about a covenant, what covenant is God saying he will uphold with Noah? Well, the covenant that was already in existence, the covenant with creation, although Noah will be the new Adam, and we will explore the parallels between Genesis 8 and 9 and Genesis 1 next week, which are just astonishing. But for now, it is enough to identify the wonder, the marvel of the Lord of heaven and earth entering into covenant relationship with his people, and God brings to the table his faithfulness, his steadfast love, his kindness, his mercy, his grace, and in the end expresses the fullness of this in the new covenant where he gives us his Son. And surely the knowledge, the hearing, or however God expressed this to Noah, surely the knowledge of a covenantal relationship with God, the specifics were spelled out more after the flood, surely the knowledge of this, of knowing that Noah would enjoy further a relationship with God as he walked in the obedience of faith, surely that is what encouraged Noah to continue walking in the obedience of faith. 
Just put yourself in his shoes, but for a moment. God has just given you a blueprint to build a massive floating zoo. And you are responsible to build and gather supplies for everything that will go into the ark. And you need to do it because this is the survival of everything is dependent upon it. And everyone else around you is living not only like there's no tomorrow, but they're living like there's no judgment. What is going to make you listen and obey what God has said? That's what Noah does. Verse 22 tells us, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Why would he do this? I believe we can see from verse 18, he did this because God is worth it. He heard God say, I will establish my covenant with you. Noah has a relationship with God himself. That is what is so remarkable about all of this. I love the phrase, you've heard me say it before, God is the gospel. We don't love God only for what he does for us. Maybe in the beginning we do, but we come to realize we love God for himself. It is because of who he is that we do what he says. Knowing that God is willing to covenant with his creatures is all the motivation we should ever require for walking in the obedience of faith. We get to have a relationship with God. Surely that is encouragement to walk in the obedience of faith. A third one comes to us in chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord says there to Noah, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. We are encouraged to walk in the obedience of faith because God sees those who walk in the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith does not escape God's notice. We are encouraged to walk in the obedience of faith because God sees those who walk in the obedience of faith. Again, chapter 6, verse 22, and chapter 7, verse 1, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him, and God saw it. Church, that is so compelling. That is so encouraging. God is aware of the actions that we take to follow His commands. And not only that, God seeing the obedience of Noah's faith, He does reward the obedience of Noah's faith. Go into the ark, you and all your household, verse one, seven, chapter 7, verse 1, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Before Noah's faith is highlighted in Hebrews 11, as previously mentioned, the verse right before it says, and you've heard it again, but hear it now, without faith it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, certainly Noah did, and that he rewards those who seek him, certainly Noah experienced this. Dear brothers and sisters, our God is a God who sees and he will commend us for the obedience of our faith, which is part and parcel of the gift of his grace to us. I don't know who wrote this or where I come across this, but picture a dad, picture a father who gives of his own money to his young son or daughter so the son or daughter can buy him a birthday present. And then, the, the, you know, the, 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 on his birthday, the dad receives the gifts. He opens it up, the gift that he bought. 
that is given by his child, and he thanks the child for the gift that has been given. And so it is with God. He gives us grace so that we can obey in honor of him, uh, and then he rewards us for it. It's just grace piled upon grace upon grace upon grace. And with this, we can be assured, dear church, that he keeps careful note of each private and public act of the obedience of our faith. That act of integrity at work that goes against the culture of deceit so prevalent in your office, God sees. That offense that you overlook, choosing rather to be wronged than to get your pound of flesh, God sees. That rolling of the eyes that you encounter, sometimes even from professing Christians, because you appealed to God's Word for a certain decision, He sees. The patient, loving act of reading the same book to your toddler for the 17th time, God sees. The ridicule that you experience when your group of friends discovers that you're a virgin because you obey God's Word regarding sexuality, God sees. However, the many different ways the obedience of our faith manifests, God is aware of every single instance. And doesn't that encourage us to just keep going in the obedience of faith? The commentary on Noah in 6.22 continues in 7.5. Receiving further instructions to now enter the ark that Noah obediently built as God graciously revealed his plans, he goes in with all of his household, clean and unclean animals. Noah complies, and it says in 7.5, and Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Obviously, there is now a sense of urgency to do so. Because in verse 4, the Lord says, seven days, clock has ticked down now. The rain's coming, 40 days and 40 nights. And every living thing, he said, that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God, which we are encouraged in fourthly in the section chapter 7, verses 6 to 16. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God because God shuts in those who walk in the obedience of faith and He shuts out those who don't. There is refuge from judgment for those who trust and obey. There is no refuge from judgment for those who don't. God shuts in those who walk in the obedience of faith and He shuts out those who do not. The account slows way down here in a way that is almost annoying to the modern reader by virtue of its painstaking detail and repetition. Reading chapter 6, verses 6 to 10, and then chapter 7, verses 11 to 15, would be like watching a YouTube video, being forced to watch a YouTube video, where the first half, the second half is absolutely identical to the second half, and you're not allowed to pause or hit stop or refresh your browser or go anywhere else. You just have to sit there and watch it. That's what's happening here. And it's slowing us down. And the emphasis in slowing us down is on what God does and on what Noah does which are far more important than details about the ark or the flood. The year of Noah's life was marked in verse 6, and then again in verse 11, along with the month and the very day. Twice we are told that these eight souls boarded the ark. Twice 
we are told that the animals boarded the ark. Twice we are told that the floodwaters came upon the earth. And twice more we are told of the results of the obedience of faith. In verse 9, as God had commanded Noah. And verse 16, as God had commanded Noah. Now four times we're told about obedience of Noah in this situation. And what is the result of this obedient procession? Look to the end of verse 16, chapter 7. And the Lord shut him in. God disclosed the reality of the pending judgment in the flood. God revealed the plans for the ark to Noah as the way of salvation. God commanded Noah to enter the ark. And when Noah, believing and obeying, did all of this, God in his grace, he shuts the door at Noah's back. The flood that is coming will not touch those who are aboard the vessel. And this is a beautiful expression of God's personal care his seal of salvation upon Noah and his family. And this is an act, a a scene that should move us deeply. For the Christian, the noise of the Lord shutting the door at Noah's back sounds exactly like Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The noise of the Lord shutting the door at Noah's back sounds exactly like Jesus' words to the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3.10, where he says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance and how we need that, he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. The noise of the Lord shutting the door at Noah's back sounds exactly like Ephesians 1, 13 to 14, where Paul, writing to the church, says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. The noise of the Lord shutting the door at Noah's back sounds exactly like Jesus' words in John 10, verses 28 to 29, where he says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Brothers and sisters, if we are walking in the obedience of faith, having trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are not going anywhere. Judgment will not touch us, for our triune God will never loosen His grip of salvation on us. If we are in Christ, there is a door shut at our back, and the judgment to come will not touch us. But this act of mercy... For this one family is an act of judgment for everyone else. The noise of the Lord shutting the door at Noah's back, falling on the deaf ears of his generation, would quickly become a terrifying sound. Everyone else is about to die, closed off from the deliverance of the ark, from the deliverance of the obedience of faith. In the history of God's dealing with humanity, In the progress of redemption, there has always been, always been a dividing line between those who are the people of God and those who are not the people of God, between those who walk in the obedience of faith and between those who do not walk in the obedience of faith. 
The first dividing line, we've already seen it. Garden of Eden. Inside and then outside. The next dividing line we've seen as well. It was the offerings of Cain and Abel. And then we see another dividing line. It's the genealogies of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And here there's another dividing line. It's the door of the ark. Fast forward a little bit. The people of Israel and there are those who are inside the camp and there are those who are outside the camp. There are those who are clean and those who are unclean. Fast forward a little bit more. We come to the church with the dividing line of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ, who are saved, which is made visible in baptism, and those who reject Jesus Christ, which if they continue to do, will perish in the judgment to come. And all of this points to the future if we fast forward once more to an eternal dividing line separating those who enter the heavenly city having washed their robes in the blood of Christ and those outside of the city in the lake of fire who do not. There has been and always will be a dividing line which we cannot and therefore must not try to erase. And so I am duty-bound to ask on which side of this dividing line do you currently stand? Church, We are duty-bound to give clear indication to people on which side of that line they stand and what will happen to them unless God in His mercy and grace seals them in the ark that is Christ. Countless men and women and children in our world today have no idea that this line exists, that there's salvation available, or that there is judgment to come. And so more of us need to give, and more of us need to give more, and more of us need to go and tell them that this is the case. And here's a follow-up exercise for you this afternoon. Go on to the Stratus Index website. The Stratus Index, Stratus Earth, I think. Stratus.Earth will get you there. And this is a new resource that has been developed to help Christians and churches assess the areas of greatest gospel need in our world. Parents, you can pull this up with your kids and just show them the red and the green, and they will see it. There is a need for us to go. And so look at that. And then begin to pray for the ways that the Lord would lead you personally and our church together to respond, knowing that the Lord will shut in Only those who walk in the obedience of faith and everyone else will be shut out. This reality brings us to the scene of the fifth and final encouragement to walk in the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith is the only way we experience the salvation of God rather than the judgment of God because God preserves those who walk in the obedience of faith. The Lord doesn't just shut Noah in from the judgment. The Lord sustains him through the long days of being shut in the ark. Look to verses 17 to 24 to see how this happens because of the way in which the flood prevails upon the earth. We read there in that section, the flood continues 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. It rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits, 20-something feet deep. That certainly sounds like a wide-scale flood to which the whole earth succumbed, and if so, no doubt would have radically and cataclysmically altered the global landscape. 
As mentioned earlier, inquiring minds can do their own investigation for more on this topic. What we hear, see and read here is, as a consequence of the flood, we are inundated and sobered by the judicial result. All flesh died. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Think back to the garden when God forms Adam from the dirt and he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life while God takes it back. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. They were blotted out from the earth. This is what he said he would do, and this is what he did. And the reasons for it are given, as were given last week. Humanity had ascended to the heights of evil, the opposite of God's design, indicative of an evil heart and grievous to the heart of God, and so he responds. And here humanity and all the creatures of the earth defiled by the corruption of man and woman are brought low in the judgment of a watery grave. The deluge of violence and corruption was washed away in the deluge of the flood. Except, verse 23, only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And as we will see next week, Lord willing, but God remembered Noah. Here's how the Apostle Peter encourages the church regarding God's dealings with Noah. This is 2 Peter 2. If God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of deviling passion and despise authority. The end of it all. As the flood prevails mightily upon the earth after God shuts Noah in, Noah and his family, they are preserved. They are kept all the way through. And this is encouragement to us because it helps us to see, as Peter, uh, uh, as Peter does, it helps us to see that no matter the darkness that we are faced with, we are encouraged to continue in the obedience of faith what do we do? We put one foot in front of the other, plodding an ordinary Christian life one day after the next, slogging along in the paths of righteousness, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it. That's what we do because we know in the end, as we get to the end of our race, having walked the obedience of faith, that God will keep us all the way through. And so no matter how hard it is, no matter how dark it is, no matter how difficult it is, we are encouraged to plod along in the obedience of faith, strengthened by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the life of righteous, blameless Noah who walks with God teaches us. As it would have taught ancient Israel, as it's taught our forebears who have gone ahead of us, and as it teaches us today, there is every encouragement to continue walking in the obedience of faith.